If I'm not speaking, it's Josh. I just wanted to make sure everybody knew who he was. I don't think he needs any introduction because Josh has been here several times before, but this is Josh Webster. He works with the Christian Student Center in the Shoals area. He's been involved with youth, I guess you could say, since he was a youth, pretty much. I've known Josh most of his life, and he's been well involved with the youth ministries in a lot of different places and camping, church camps, and that type of stuff. Uh, so let's give Josh our attention tonight. Thank you, Ken. Yes, I have been blessed in my life to be surrounded by really good people and really good people who taught and convinced me that the Lord's Church is very important and that we need to do all that we can to see that we help the church, we help each other, that we be committed to each other as God's people and that we be committed to bringing souls to Christ. And so uh, I have been very blessed and enjoyed all the time that I've had to spend ministering to people through all the years. I am with the University of North Alabama Christian Student Center. I've been working with them now since 2015. Uh, I very much enjoy working with college students. Um, I have been working with college students just long enough to see a couple of generations come through. And I just want to mention something about the generation that's coming through now. I know that sometimes our, our young people, our college students, we, we have concerns, and, and maybe rightfully so. Um, this group of college students, it's really exciting right now. They want to know about answers. They ask questions, and they want answers. And in Bible class, they'll ask questions, and they want to know why. But they ask another question. They want to know, what does the Bible say about it? And I want to tell you what, that hasn't happened in all of our generations. But this generation is asking that question. I think that says a lot about the future of the church. If you're worried about the future of the church, I'm telling you don't. I'm telling you what we need to do is we need to give resources to make sure that our young people are receiving the teaching and the training that they need. And if we will do that, I believe this next generation will do some wonderful things in the church. I, I'm, I'm, I very much enter, uh, enjoy the Christian Student Center. You know, our goal there is, is really twofold. One is to keep the faithful faithful. And I can throw out a bunch of numbers to you and stats about how many young people lose their faith when they go off to college, especially maybe a state university. Uh, but I think you've probably heard those numbers before, uh, and you also are aware of the different things that are available on a public campus that they can choose to be involved in, and how important it would be to provide a place for Christian students where they could be and they belong, and they can do that without the outside influences so that they can be together and together they can work towards common goals, which is the second part of what we do, taking the gospel to a campus who need it so very much. And our students are doing a good job with that. And uh, we realized years ago that the best way to take the gospel of Christ to a campus is one-on-one. -on -one. Each student looking for the opportunities that God put in front of them. So I guess you could say that we're teaching our college students 
how to fish. Instead of giving them a fish, we're teaching them how to fish. Instead of doing a bunch of service projects, which we do service projects, we teach them about a life of service and teach them how to do a life of service. And so we are very, very impressed with this generation that is coming through. I need to thank you for your continued support of the Christian Student Center. One thing I always ask is that if you know of some young people that are attending University of North Alabama or Shoals Christian, or I'm sorry, it's not Shoals Christian, uh, Shoals Community College, or maybe Heritage Christian University, if, ask them if they are involved at the Christian Student Center. If they're not, then encourage them to be involved. If you will give me their name and number, we will, I'll have some of the students contact them, so it's not kind of weird, an old guy calling them, but I'll have uh, some of the students contact them, and I'll follow up with them, and we would like to see them involved. That's the first thing I always ask of people. Please make sure that our Young people know that we're there and know that we have awesome things, incredible things going on there for them. So thank you for your support and please send more our way. Take a few minutes this morning, this evening, and, uh, and, and, and just talk to you about an idea. Um, <clears throat> so what you see here on the screen in front of you, this is a... Uh, 2020 Lamborghini um, this looks like a very nice car and if you know anything about the the car world Lamborghinis are, are highly prized cars and the manufactured suggested retail price on this car was a little over two hundred seventy five thousand dollars so you look at the car and, and I ask you what, what's what's the value of this car what is the car worth and well two hundred seventy five thousand dollars or so let me show you another car here. This is a 1967 Ford Mustang GT. Factory four speed. It came with a 390 big block engine in it. Uh, of course, you can see the color there, the green color, the hunter green color. Now, there's some things you may not be able to tell about this car sitting where you are. But you walk or you get up close to this, you can actually see there's rust on this car. There's rust. There's actually some rust holes down close to the bottom of the rocker panels there. And so you, you look at that car and, and I ask you, you know, what is that car worth? Where, well, when it was sold new in 1967, this car sold for $2,692. Yeah, that's about $21,000 in today's money. So I ask you, what do you think this car is worth? 1967, I'm not going to call it a rust bucket, but it's got rust in it. So, also in 1967, there was a movie that was released in October of that year, and the name of the movie was Bullet. Some of you may remember when it came out. And there was a couple of people in that movie, rather famous, Steve McQueen, Jacqueline Bissett, they were in the movie, and it, I've seen the movie. It's not bad. It's, it's kind of an enjoyable movie. But you know that Steve McQueen, Jacqueline Bissett, they were not the real stars of this movie. It was this car that was the star of that movie that later became known as the Bullet Mustang. 
I had an opportunity back last year, uh, my son loves cars. And we had an opportunity to travel down to Kissimmee, Florida, where the Mecham Auto Auctions were auctioning this car off. And so we had an opportunity to go down and see the car. And we went and saw the car, walked all around it, and I will tell you, there was a lot more rust and defects in the car than I thought it would be. I really did. There's even some dents in it, et cetera, et cetera. How much do you think the car is worth? Is it worth the 2,600 and something odd dollars that was paid back in 1967? Is it worth what maybe what other 1967 Mustang GTs, fastbacks are selling for nowadays, anywhere from 30000 up to $200,000? Is it worth somewhere in that range? All right, if you don't know, hold on to your seat. This car sold at auction by the time all the fees and everything were paid for $3.74 million. What's the car worth? What is that car worth? You see, we talk about value and what is value. And we think about what are people worth? What am I worth? Now, I want to invite you to follow along with me in your scripture. Be turning, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I do have a lot of verses that I want to read tonight, but I'm going to do my best to give you time to turn to those scriptures because I am a firm believer in seeing it for yourself in black and white. So what is something worth? What is something worth? You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a car guy, and I like to kind of keep up with cars myself and what things bring at auction. That car, the Bullet Mustang, that sold for $3.74 million. Now, I, I, it went for more than I thought it was going to. I guessed it would go for somewhere around $2 million. I was not expecting the 3.74 overall. What are people worth? What are people worth? What are you worth? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I would like for you to look down and notice verse 20. For you were bought at a price... Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Please notice in that verse that there is a price that was paid. And you think of price, you think of value. What is your value to God? What price is it that he would be willing to pay? Turn over to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. And we're going to find there in this verse about value about people and about how God feels about people and at what price he is willing to pay, what value he places on them. So Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, what does it say? It says that the church was purchased with the blood of Jesus, right? That's what it says there. Purchased with the blood of Jesus. What is our value? Our value is equal to the price or the value of the blood of Jesus. There has never been anything more valuable than the blood of Christ. Nothing. There's no amount of money that could ever buy it. There is no amount of wealth that a person could give. There's no amount of good that a person can do to receive it. This price is so incredible that it's so astronomical That no matter how much wealth we gather from all over the universe, it will never equal to the price, the value, the blood of Jesus. And guess what? 
That's what he bought me with. That's what he paid for you. And maybe we like to think, well, now that's really what he paid for mankind. He paid that price for all mankind. Now, I get that. I get that. He did. But not everyone chooses to follow him. God looked at you. He looked at me. He looked at those that came before us. And he individually, he would say, if I just have to buy one, I will give this price for that one. Each one of us individually. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. Real neat verse here. Samuel got a, a lesson from God, and I think that this is a lesson that, that we need today. Something that we need to see is he was selecting who was going to be the king of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Notice verse 7 if you would. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We have a tendency that when we see people or we meet people, that we start placing on them a value by, by how they look. Maybe by the clothes that they wear, or the house that they live in, or, or maybe by the kind of job that they have. It's very easy as humans for us to do that. And we all fall into that, that trap sometimes to see people and we start to put a value on them based on external appearances. But what we need to understand is that's not how God sees people. That is not how God sees people. That is not how God values people. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, if you would. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 26 here. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barn, yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and you are of more value than they. One more here in Matthew chapter, in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10. Two verses here towards the end of that chapter, verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are worth more value than many sparrows. Are you starting to see how God sees people? What is his view of people? I mean, God isn't just seeing people. He even knows about the hairs on their head. Some of us less than others. But he sees that. And this is how he looks at people. This is how intricately, this is how intimately he sees people. So what are people worth? Now, you can turn to John chapter 3 and verse 16, but I'm very confident you probably know what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God looked at the world and he saw the value that was there, the people that were there, and he gave his son for that, for that humanity. Uh, Matthew chapter 22 again. Or the book of Matthew, but chapter 22 this time. Verse 35. 
Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we can stop right there and, and boy, that'll preach. As a preacher I used, I used to know, he'd say that dog will hunt right there. We could spend a lot of time on that. But look at the next verse. When Jesus says, on these commandments hang all the law and prophets. Now, with my college students, I, I, I often tell them, anytime you see the word all in Scripture, you need to listen up especially in the New Testament. And you need to spend some time looking at that word. All the law and all the prophets. If it's all the law and all the prophets, what's left out? Nothing is left out. Everything that God wanted to say to mankind is wrapped up right here in these two statements. Love God and love your neighbors. This is a lesson that our world needs. We need this. We need this. And I want to challenge us as Christians. We should be doing the best job at loving God and loving our neighbors. To the extent that when others see us, they notice that. They notice it. They were first called Christians at Antioch. You've read that verse, Acts chapter 17, verse 28. You've heard that before. They were first called Christians at Antioch. Have you ever wondered why they were not called something else? Why were they called Christians? I mean, they could be observed and, and, and be called a lot of different things. They could have been called by what their profession was. They saw a lot of people in this, this church was this certain thing or that certain thing. My point here is that when they were observed, they were called Christians because of who they were, because of their behavior. That needs to happen today. The world needs to be able to see us and they call us who we are because of how we act, because of what we say. How we value others is a direct reflection upon how we value ourselves. Now you take a look here on the screen. There's a lot of different people here on the screen. I've, I've thrown in there a couple. You may, you may not recognize them. Some local, some not local. But there's a, a wide variety of different people here on the screen. And you look across, you see some that we call professionals. There's some that we call blue collars. There are some that we call homeless. There are some that we call handicapped. But when you look across that screen, do you see a difference in these people? Now, I'm not talking about their education or the wealth level. When you look at them, which one of these people deserves to the gospel of Christ? Does any one of them deserve it less? Does any one of them deserve it more? I would submit to you tonight that God looks at them and he sees all of them the same way and says that each one of these people need the gospel of Christ. Whether they're famous, 
whether they're not famous, whether they're a preacher or not a preacher, whether they're homeless or they live in a mansion. Every single one of them deserves the gospel. I have a neighbor, and I'm going to be candid with you about my neighbor. A lot of people, when they encounter him, probably would not spend much time with him. He's made some bad decisions in his life. He's in his 60s now. And some of the decisions that he has made has led to him having some poor health. He had his leg amputated back uh, several years ago, and, and so now he has a prosthetic leg. So I moved out there close to him uh, a little over a year ago now. And right up front, he was very standoffish. He just, you know, there was, there was a wall there. And I just kept being kind and kept loving him and kept letting him know we was there for him. And uh, he lives in a little camper out beside some family there. And so from time to time, my kids would take a meal up to him or a dessert up to him. I came home one day, and here's this one-legged man in poor health on his tractor, bush hogging my place. So I went and talked to him. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So, well, thank you for bush hogging my place. And he said, I want to tell you something. He said, I've been on this earth for 60-something years. And I've never had neighbors that cared about me. Isn't that something? The thing is... I know people that live around us that are members of the church. When God sees people, he doesn't care about whether they have a leg or not have a leg. He is willing to forgive every bad decision that's in the past. He is willing to make life new for them. He is willing to write their name in the book of life. He is willing to dwell with them for all eternity. Are we? Are we? Is that how we see people? Can I remind you of John chapter 4? The story there about a woman who came to a well close to the town of Sychar. And there is Jesus and his disciples and they're coming through the area and, and Jesus stops there at the well, sends his disciples on into town to get some food. And there beside the well he has an encounter with this woman. This is a sinful woman. We don't know all of her sins, but we do know that she's had five different what is called husbands. And the one she is with now, she's not married to. That's sin. Now, some of us at that point, we may say, I can't help this lady. There's nothing I can really do. Maybe we believe that in our hearts, or maybe it is that we're just scared to get our hands dirty. Let me just tell you something. If you want to be involved in evangelism, you've got to be willing to get dirty. If you're, willing to, if you're wanting to save souls, you have got to be ready to get in there. You've got to be really ready to go to the pig pen, to the mire, where people's lives are laying stagnant and they cannot get out. You have to be willing to go there. And Jesus did that in John 4. And he offered this woman living water. Not just water that comes from the well that she would drink and thirst again, but water that if she drank it for all eternity, there would be a difference. It would quench 
her spirit. It would give her spirit what it needed. Or can I remind you of Luke chapter 19 and the story there of a short man. When we were in Sunday school, we sang that song about Zacchaeus being a wee little man. Well, here's something else. You may have forgotten about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was looked at by the Hebrew people as sinful because of his profession. And he had cheated some people. He admitted that himself. People would look at Zacchaeus and say, he's not worthy. He's not worthy. People would see Jesus interacting with certain people and say, look, he eats with sinners. And Jesus would say, yeah, you're right. I do. I do. Now, side note real quick, young people. Read about Jesus interacting with sinners. Read about him eating with sinners. Most of the time, you see that he is surrounded by his disciples. I do not encourage you to, to go off by yourself into a crowd of people who are evil and try to bring them back. You need to have support in those situations. Zacchaeus was a sinful man. Jesus looked at him and he did not see a wee little man. Jesus saw him worthy of going to his home, sitting down and spending time with him. And guess what happened? Salvation. Salvation came to that household because Jesus invested time. Perhaps it is that we have an identity crisis going on in our country. Our culture is very, very messed up. Very messed up and it's throwing a lot of different signals at our young people as they grow up. Now, those who are not blessed with having good family, parents who are helping to guide and teach them, having a good congregation with teaching programs, having people in the church that are surrounding them and encouraging them, young people that, that don't have that good support group, they are extremely confused right now. Because culture is throwing at them things about identity and is convincing them that you develop your identity based on the things you do. I'm a football player. I'm a basketball player. I'm in the band. I'm a volleyball player. I, I'm a mountain bike rider. I'm a cat lover. I'm this, I'm that. And that my identity is wrapped up in all of this. That's not our identity. That is not who we are. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ. And why this is so important is that we have this crisis in identity and how we value ourselves is a catalyst for developing our identity. And how we value ourselves plays a role in how we value other people. It all works together and it plays roles together and fulfilling what it is that Jesus has called us to do. And so I, let me ask you, who are you? Who are you? If we were to pass out name tags here tonight and at the top it says, hello, I am, we'd be tempted just to write our name in there. But what if I told you you couldn't write your name in there? What if I told you you had to write something else in there? What would you write? How would you describe you? What is your identity? What are you becoming? Are you becoming, young people, are you looking to become an engineer? Are you looking to become a nurse, a doctor, a dentist? Are you looking to go into the workforce and 
be uh, an electrician or a plumber. That's great and wonderful, but that's not who you are. That's just what you do. Who you are is something very, very, very different. Turn to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, if you would. I know there's a familiar verse here in Galatians chapter 2 in verse 20. It's in a song that we sing. One of our devotional songs. Look what it says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lived, but live, but Christ that lives in me. In the life of which we now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life that I live is Christ. That is the life that I now live. It's not that I'm something else. Look, our identity is found in the fact that we are Christian people. That is our identity, and that is what we strive for. We're not striving for perfection in any other thing other than being perfect at being a Christian. And you say, well, that's impossible. It's not a moving target then. It's a stationary target that remains constant. It's always the same. That's the problem with this world. There's always a moving target. You achieve one level and then what happens? Your boss wants more, right? More education, continue education, get better. We know what's expected of us from God. It's the perfection that was found in his son, Jesus. It's a solid goal. You aim at that and you keep going. It never, ever changes and before you get upset or before you become discouraged that well I can never be that understand that's the way it is that's the way it was intended to be because if I ever reached that level there would be no need for salvation anymore right I press on I go towards that prize that's the way that it was meant to be Acts chapter 17, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. For in him we live. We would not be alive without him. He created everything, right? That's God. That's what he did for us. In him we live. In him we move. As we go about our day to day, we do that with God, because of God, with his blessings. And in him we have our being, who we are, our identity. It is God's. That is what we identify with. That is precisely and exactly who we are. And so tonight, we've talked about value. We've talked about people. How valuable are people? How valuable are you? This is what I would like for you to know as we close. One, please know how very much God loves you. Please know that. If, if God were here speaking to us, if he sent Jesus the word of God here tonight speaking to us, he would say it with tears in his eyes how much he loves you. He loves you so much. He loves you so much that he went to a cross 
and was nailed to that cross and he died there on that cross for you. Have you ever thought about Jesus there in the garden as he was praying and weeping? And praying and weeping and was so distraught that the sweat became like drops of blood? What was it that scared him so much? What, what was so terrifying? It's easy to say, well, he was scared about the pain that he was about to go through. And that may be. But I asked myself a question. If I had the opportunity, if I knew that I could be tortured, but on the other side of it, I would be with God, I would say, torture me. I'll take eternity. I think Jesus knew what was going to happen. I think he knew eventually he would be with God. What was it? There was something so terrifying. He did not want to go through it. But he did it because he saw you. He did it because he saw my face. He did it because he knew that I needed him. He knew that we needed him. He knew that there was a world. Please know tonight that God loves you. And he has done all that he can. He has done his part. There is nothing more that he can do until we obey him. And when we obey him, once again, we will see his blessings pour out upon us. He loves you. Where are you tonight? Where are you in your spiritual walk with God? It's the great thing. He knew we were going to mess up. He knew that we were going to fall. That's why the blood of Christ is there. That's why we have a second chance and a third and a fourth and a fifth because we can come back. We can start over. The next thing that I would like to end with tonight, please know that God loves you but he loves all them folks out there too, just as much. And maybe you have a neighbor, a neighbor that you've never really tried to build a relationship with. That neighbor needs Jesus. That neighbor needs to know what the love of God has done in your life. That, need, that neighbor needs to know that it is making a difference in your life. And if you will take those actions and display it before your neighbors and you will let them know how much you care for them with no agenda other than here is human beings that need to be treated the way that Jesus would treat people. The more I read the New Testament and the more I read the Old Testament, God's plan has so much to do with how we treat people. The poor the lame, the widowed, the orphans, those that were in need. Go back and read your book again. I think you'll see it. We have to have love, compassion, and concern starting with our neighbors because on, all, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It may be that you have form, some form of spiritual need this evening. If so, there's an opportunity. We invite you to come. Now, while we stand and while we sing,